Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach Your Word this morning, I ask that Your Spirit He would be here. He would be active in parting life. That as Your Word is declared, that we would be convicted of sin where it is needed. We would be comforted where it is needed. And that You would strengthen us unto Your service. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We're moving uh, now into a section of text, the next couple messages, that could rightly be called controversial. That could rightly say, we could say, pushes back against the very underlying current of society today. And as, as we're del- delivering or walking through the argument Peter's making here, we should note that when he's talking about submission here to the state, when he's talking about submission as slaves to their masters and wives to their husbands, um, he's doing so because of what immediately came before. What immediately came before is the text in which Peter is talking about these new realities that you have in Christ by faith. You're now a a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. These are these new realities. What does that mean for how we live in this world? And specifically, if you were here uh, the last couple semesters with Dr. Kennedy's Sunday school class, uh, this theology caused some real problems in the church of Corinth. This theology caused some real tension in people's lives because their fundamental identities had shifted. Well, how do I still live in this age? And I want us to think about that as we move uh, throughout these texts here uh, this morning and then the next time we gather, is the impact of Christianity on our thinking in the West today is absolutely inescapable. The assumptions of our faith are everywhere present, and even in the most vitriolic unbeliever. Whether we are talking about things like justice or truth or reality or government or things like equality and human rights, those are the unique gift of Christianity to the world as a whole. If you've studied history, you know this to be true. I'll just put it this way. If you've studied history written before the last 20 to 30 years, you know this to be true. There is a sense that Christianity's influence is pervasive even in our late stage of secularism today. So that's why I'm going to ask this question as we move into these two texts. Why do we as a people today, almost universally, hate the idea of slavery? Why? How can moderns who look back at Scripture and attack Christianity for the passages about slavery, how can they call slavery wrong? 
Any student of history knows that slavery was absolutely universal in every civilization of the world until the Christian West. And then the Christian West, those evil colonizers, forced the rest of the world to do it too to get rid of it. How can such an institution become so condemned? There's much we could say about this, that slavery is not so much condemned outside of the Western tradition today. There are still plenty of countries where it is practiced. And yet, it is an indisputable fact that every major civilization had slaves. And it's equally true that only in the West was it eradicated. And it's also equally true that only the United States of America was the only country in world history to send its own people to fight and die and to kill its own people to stop it. That's all both a good thing and a bad thing. Some people held on to it so, so much so that they were willing to die to protect it, and other people were so against it they were willing to kill and to die to get rid of it. How did this happen in the West? Well, the answer is unquestionably Christianity. The influence of Christianity led to the end of slavery, not once in Western history, but actually twice. They eradicated Roman slavery, and then we eradicated the transatlantic slave trade. And it is true that while Christianity led to the end of slavery, there were also many Christians who wrongly used it to justify slavery. And 1 Peter 2 addresses this issue, not just today, but when we gather again back in 1 Peter 2. It was not solely, or but, sorry, let me rephrase that. American slavery, I can say with no hesitation, was 100% contrary to what the Bible speaks about and regulates. For example, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, a capital offense that would get you killed and kept out of heaven was the sin of man-stealing. The transatlantic slave trade was exclusively built upon man-stealing. If you stole someone and sold them into slavery, according to Old Testament law, you were to be put to death. According to the book of Revelation, you are to be kept out of heaven if you have done these things. And so, when we read about slavery like we will here in 1 Peter chapter 2, you need to realize something very important. Greek and Roman slavery was different than American slavery. But in saying that, that doesn't mean it was a cakewalk for the individuals involved. It doesn't mean it was righteous. What we have here in 1 Peter chapter 2, as elsewhere in the New Testament, is instruction for Christians who lived in a time when they had no realistic hope that the slavery would ever end. We have instruction, therefore, for masters. And that instruction is often, hey, you better treat those people well, otherwise God is going to judge you. We have instructions for slaves to how to live under the rule of even evil masters. And we also have instruction that includes, hey, if you can get your freedom as a slave, get it. And get it as quickly as you can. And then we have other texts like Philemon, where Paul commands the freeing of a slave to one of his members of the church at Colossae. So what we're going to know today in 1 Peter 2 is what I have called the call to live as free slaves. That there is an underlying freedom Christians are called to live with. Even if they were slaves, even if they were living under an oppressive government, they were called to live as free and this underlying freedom is found in this underlying equality we have before God. And that underlining, our underlying equality was something that Rome simply did not believe in. And it was this belief 
That was the small pebbles that began an avalanche that resulted in the end of slavery, as we know it. So living as someone who is in Christ creates for us tensions as we inhabit a fallen world in a sinful society. And today's passage helps us to understand how you and I should live in such a world, even though we are in Christ. And if we read this carefully over the next two sermons, we will see exactly how subversive Peter's actually been to the systems of his day. And how Christianity eventually turned the world up side down and eventually did the unthinkable and got rid of slavery. So we start here with the new relationship Christians have to the state. And we've covered this a lot last fall, if you remembered, if you were with us. We did, I think, about eight messages on the Christian view of the state. And sorry, I'm not going to cover all of that here this morning. I do encourage you, if you want, if you have specific questions or you missed some of that series, to go back and listen to it. It's available on our website. The reason Peter here and Paul elsewhere starts with this idea that we are to be in submission to the government is because Christianity is wholly at odd with um, anarchy. And our Christian new realities places this tension for the Christian as they live under the Roman government. The new realities Christ brought in, a new standing, that new identity, the reality that it is a new nation and a kingdom that is not of this world, is a declaration that we don't ultimately belong to the nations of this world. Moreover, the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior were political statements because Caesar went around saying he was Lord and Savior. There was a direct challenge throughout the New Testament on this. And so without any further guidance, the church could have become a seedbed of anarchy and rebellion and revolution. And in fact, that is often what the early church was accused of. And the early church apologists argued, no, 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 you misunderstand our faith. And Peter, like Paul, throws a curveball here, some correction, so that we don't go that way. He writes, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him. So the first command for Christians in the relationship to the state is to submit to the emperor and to all who are sent to govern on his behalf. Much like Paul says in Romans 13, to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because the state is God's servant for a specific purpose. More on that in a minute. So Christians are to submit to the emperor, and obviously, as you read your Bible, that has limits upon it. If they're disobeying God, if they are commanding disobedience to God, you are not only free, but you are compelled to disobey them. The examples are, are numerous. And yet we also have to note that Rome was thoroughly corrupt and wicked as a governing system. And Peter still says, submit. You should be feeling that tension. Why? Because bad government is better than no government at all. And yet even here, Paul is being subversive to Rome's political practice. The reason we are called to submit is not because of the might of the emperor, not because the emperor claimed it to be divine, it is not to submit to the glory of Rome. It is not to say, submit to the peace of Rome or anything like that. We are called to submit for the Lord's sake. Why do we submit to the emperor? Not because 
He's the emperor, and we have to submit to the emperor, but we do so for the Lord's sake. It is God's authority, not the state, that moves us, that compels us to submit. And thus, Caesar is cut off at the knees. And this brings that necessary entailment. Thus, we only submit when we are actually submitting to the Lord. When the state commands something that the Lord does not, we no longer submit, because we are always submitting to the Lord. The odd thing of Christianity is that it is both revolutionary, but it is also conservative and respects institutions as gifts of God. Now by conservative here, I do not mean the conservative aisle of the political ideology of America, but I mean actually cons- actual conservatism, that we conserve traditions, we conserve institutions. We are commanded, he says here, to be subject to every human institution, any with a rightful claim. In America, it is not the emperor who is at the head of the state, it's the law. We are a nation of laws. It is the Constitution that reigns supreme. Christians are called, therefore, to honor the Constitution as supreme and the delegated authorities under it. A constitutional president, Congress, judiciary, state, and local government. We are to be in submission. And again, this is given at a time where Rome was very corrupt. Let's rest on that for a moment. We live in a time that we could rightly call be, is marked by critical theory. If you don't know what it is, that's fine. But you see it all throughout our society. We could call it another thing, deconstructionism. Critical theory is critical of every human institution, especially in the West, and wants to destroy every human institution because it says oppression is baked into every institution. Therefore, we need to tear them down. And people literally tear down statues because they're trying to tear down our institutions. Critical theory in that way, in all of its manifestations, is anti-institutional. It does not honor, it only destroys. And we as Christians can agree that institutions can be corrupted. And indeed, some of the institutions they point to as corrupted, I would point to as corrupted, but for completely different reasons. The reasons they are corrupted, in my opinion, is they have abandoned their original design and purpose. They have abandoned our ideals of the rule of law, the blindness of the law, the equality of men and women before God, God God-given rights, limited government, etc., Critical theory sees the corruption in keeping those principles. See the difference. And so they dishonor them. Let me put this as plainly as I can. 1 Peter 2 disallows Christians from being or having any part in critical theory. You must honor the institutions that God has established through the works of men. Critical theory hates the institutions and wants to destroy them. You can have no part in them. There are many reasons for this, but we'll we'll move on. Some will say, though, Christianity is also revolutionary. And even I admit that. It is, but it changed the world, is changing the world, and will continue to change the world. But it does not do so in opposition to all hierarchies. The one thing critical theory hates is this idea that there are hierarchy structures, which is odd because they just want to bring in their their own hierarchy, which won't go so well. And so it brings revolution. Christianity brings revolution through an inherently different means. 
and enables us to submit to one another, knowing that we are all equal because we are submitting ultimately to the Lord, not to fellow image bearers. So let me say another thing very plainly. Hierarchies are not all bad, and hierarchies are inescapable. You will never find a world without them. In the new heavens, in the new earth, there will be a hierarchy. Christ will be upon his throne. We will be under him. And he will give out crowns to many people to rule many different sizes of kingdoms. And none of that is wrong. The difference between Christian renewal and critical theories deconstructionism is in basic the standard used. And that standard makes a world of difference. One is a free-for-all without any actual standard of justice or right beyond deconstruction. The other is tied to God's standards and therefore has a morality. Now we move on to the state's purpose. Peter describes what is the main purpose of the state in verses 14 through 15. He says, To punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The government exists to punish evildoers. Its main function, as Paul says in Romans 13, is to bear the sword, and in doing so, it protects the rights of its people from evil people, from evil actors, whether they be fellow citizens or foreign enemies. When the government ceases to punish criminals, as some local governments are starting to do, they become as worthless as a bucket with a giant hole in it. Your main function is to punish evildoers. Well, I don't want to do it. Well, then you're worthless. That is the purpose of the state. In addition, the government is said here to praise those who do good. What does that mean? Well, it is an encouragement that is fleshed out in the next couple of verses as they are called to live rightly. When you are living and doing what is good, the government should have no reason to come and harass you. That doesn't stop it from doing so sometimes, but that's Peter's argument. The government exists to punish evil. Therefore, if you live good lives, the government will mostly leave you alone and it will praise those who are doing good. And so Peter commands the people to live righteously and in doing that, they put their enemies to shame as they hurl false accusations at them. And so Peter makes, the, makes it plain that being a Christian Belonging to a greater kingdom that transcends the nations of this age does not give us permission to disrespect or to disobey the kingdoms of our current age. We are not excused, but rather we are bound to obey the state and thus obey God. And again, I want to stress, there are exceptions to this. There are limitations to this. And again, I go through pretty much all of those in the, the government series. And I encourage you to check that out. But the state's power is not unchecked. They are not free to command whatever they want. And where they overstep, we are free to disobey. Like Daniel, like David, like Elisha, like Jesus, like Paul, and like Peter. The very man who wrote this stood before the governing structure of his people, the Sanhedrin, and said, Who do you think we should obey? You or God? The answer is implied. God. So the theory of the Christian view of the state or the government is this, that it is to be limited in its scope 
and its power and its function. It exists to punish evil. And Christians are to live righteously, and thus the two should not come in conflict. Like Christians in general don't commit crimes. The state exists to punish criminals. They should get along. That's what Peter is talking about here. This leads us to the central ethic of the passage. To address that tension created earlier, that Christians really do belong to a new nation. They really are a part of a royal priesthood. They really are now primarily a part of a new kingdom. And yet they submit to the lesser kingdoms of this world. Why? You have your Bibles open. Look at verse 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. This appeals back to the statement made in verse 13 that we are to submit to the Lord or for the Lord's sake. The lordship of Christ does not free us from acting rightly in response to the institutions of this world. Yet, verse 16 commands us to live as those who are truly free. What does that mean? I don't think we can just import a modern understanding of freedom onto this text. A type of freedom that means I have no obligation, no restraints. I can do whatever pops into my mind. And yet this freedom mentioned here is set in the context of talking about submission. So let me rephrase it for you. Peter is in essence saying, as you submit to the authorities, live as free men because you are free. And so we really do live in a tension as these two ages coexist. The age that is passing away and the age that is invading this world through Jesus Christ. And so Christians are not, as far as they can help it, to live in tension to the state, nor are they to be bound completely by the state. There is a freedom here that is mentioned that is more than just the forgiveness of our sins. It is a freedom of those who belong, in essence, to a completely different kingdom. Our forgiveness in Christ is the bedrock of our freedom, but it brings with it all those other realities. Or to quote Jesus from John chapter 8, whoever sins is a slave to sin. Sin really does bring slavery. The more sinful a people become, the bigger the state must grow to hem in that wickedness and that evil, and therefore the less freedom a people will have. Francis Schaeffer made this point abundantly clear in a Christian manifesto. The more wicked a people become, the bigger the state becomes in order to control it. You should be noticed our state's getting bigger and bigger. Why is it getting bigger and bigger? Because our people are thoroughly wicked. They need restraint. Evil requires something to check it, and that often is found in a growing evil state. Or you can think about why John Adams, the second president of the United States, said this. He said, Human passions unbridled by morality and religion would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. I'll read it to you again. Human passions unbridled by morality and religion would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. He had no idea what he was talking about, right? Limited government, as he said elsewhere, the government he sought to institute was for a religious and a moral people. 
big government is for those who are slaves to sin. Our government is growing because our people are enslaved to sin. And it goes that far. As others have noted, the freedom from sin that the cross gives brings political freedom as an entailment. Truly forgiven people who belong to the kingdom of Christ, who are walking by the Spirit, will not long be slaves to the institutions of this world. For sin has lost its grip upon them. And then again, that introduces the irony of this text. You are called to live as free because you are servants of God. Now here is one of those times I prefer the NIV to the ESV. The ESV, if you're reading that, it has a little footnote there because the word servant there, the NIV rightly translates as slave. As slave of God. Why does the ESV do that? It does that so that you understand there's a difference between Greek and Roman slavery and American slavery. And I'm sympathetic to that, but that's why they they chose servant there over slave. But Paul is literally saying here, Live as free people because you are slaves of God. You are free slaves who wholly belong to Christ, who were bought at a price. So Peter literally writes to a people who at that time, some of them were literally slaves. And we'll address that more next time. But he writes to slaves and those oppressed by Rome. He commands their general submission for the Lord's sake because they are already free. And they should view their submission not in service to evil men of their day, but as a service to God. And then there are limits upon that because they actually don't belong to their masters. They belong to Christ. They are free slaves. Or I could put it another way. Everybody belongs to someone. Everyone is serving someone. If you are in Christ, your fundamental identity is you are serving Christ and you belong to Him. And that frees you from every other claim upon your life. But Peter's subversion here of the Roman thinking is not yet done. Christianity both respects institutions and reforms them. So he continues in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. In the same breath, of saying that you should honor the emperor, Peter also says you should honor everyone. And again, we think that's no big deal. But that is utterly otherworldly at this time. You do not honor a slave in the same breath as you honor the emperor. But that's exactly what Peter is commanding them to do. You do not honor a non-Roman citizen as you would a Roman citizen. And yet, that's what Peter commands the church to do. There is this underlying, or underlying equality of all humans. And that is one of the most important things Christianity has given to the world as far as we talk about political theory. Anybody who ever says, this is my right, human rights, that's Christian thinking through and through. But we still struggle with treating different people differently today. If someone rich and famous or powerful were to come in next Sunday morning, some of us may struggle with treating that person just like everybody else. And yet that's exactly what the New Testament tells us to do again and again. That person puts on his pants just like you do. We are to give everyone a baseline of honor because they bear the image 
of Christ. Or as C.S. Lewis had reminded us, you've never met a mere mortal. You've never met someone who will not live for eternity. Every person has a soul. Just so you get a, a thinking as to how subversive what Peter says here really is, I'm going to read you something here from Joseph Kellerman who is commenting on Roman culture and how the New Testament flips it on its head. He writes this, Humility was not a virtue in the Roman world. So you want to teach your kids to be humble? Again, that's an inheritance of the Christian tradition. Rome, there was no humility viewed as a virtue. The society of Rome was highly stratified. That was, they in essence had a caste system. There was the Roman elite caste and then there were the non-elites. And within the Roman elite caste, there were the senators, the equestrians, and the decurions. Those were the elite. Right? That made up in total about one million people. One million. And then there were the non-elites, the freeborn, the freedmen, and the slaves. And that made up 49 million people. So if you're good at math like I am, 98% of the people were not elites. 98% of the people had no rights whatsoever. That's the glory of Rome. How did this work itself out? Well, in many ways. Cicero, who you might recognize his name, was the great orator of Rome. As he was spoke about court trials and justice and how you should proceed in judging a case, this is what he said. He said you should do so in a manner befitting the justice of his case and his own position. So someone in a higher position was to be treated utterly different than someone in a lower position. Old Testament and New Testament say, you can't do that. Rome says, that's exactly how we judge our cases. We don't show the same honor to everyone. The social class and rank was everything. What about day-to-day life? Kellerman again, on a more social setting. He describes it this way. Can you imagine hosting a dinner party at which you serve your guests Varying qualities of food and drink depending on how your friends are graded. Let me read that to you again. Can you imagine hosting a dinner party at which you would serve your guests varying qualities of food and drink depending on how your friends are graded? Pliny the senator describes a dinner party this way. The best dishes were set in front of the host in a select few in the cheap scraps of food before the rest of the company. This is what a Roman dinner party was like. You'd gather people together, you would invite slaves, you would invite low people so that you could insult them so that everyone else who was higher up felt better. This is how they lived. Like we romanticize Rome, play on words intended, that they were great. This is how they functioned. Peter comes in and says, honor everyone the same. Turn the world upside down. It cuts Roman morality off at the knees. Honor everyone, the slave and the free, the Roman and the Jew, the emperor and the commoner, for all of them bear the image of God. You and I take that for granted because of Christianity's influence today. And it is an example of the humility of our Savior Jesus Christ. A call to all of us who are in leadership to never lord it over others, but to use our leadership to serve others. And so the gospel comes in and flattens out Roman strata or caste system. All are equal. 
All are worthy of honor. All are equal in Adam as sinners. All are equal in God as image bearers. And all who come to Christ are equal in their share before the Savior. No matter what their standing is in public. And so with this call to honor the emperor and everyone else, Peter instructs us also to love the brotherhood. That is the church. While we offer the same respect to everyone as humans, we do have a categorically different relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We are to love them as Christ has loved us. And this love happens within a community, equal across across all demographics. And then finally, Peter says, fear God. The motivation for all of this is our allegiance to God. We are his servants, his slaves, and so we look to our master and we find freedom, not in fearing the emperor, not in fearing falling down the ladder of society, but in fearing God and God alone. For the Christian, the standard of our belief and practice is always rooted in who God is. And this is true in all of life. Church life, family life, citizens, neighbors, workers, spouses, parents, the standard always flows from God and His law. To suggest that there is any area where God's moral law does not apply is to suggest that God is not God in that area. And that is to suggest that He's not God at all. The heart of our motivation is the fear of the Lord and our Savior. Thus, we are called to live as free slaves as far as it concerns the institutions of this world. This means we can respect and honor. We can measure and weigh them before God in His His Word. And we offer them obedience for the Lord's sake. That legitimatizes our obedience and it also limits it. And so we are also slaves in that we do not belong to ourselves, but we are bought by the precious blood of Christ and belong to Him. I want to have one closing application for you here. It's clear on so many different levels that we live in a time of unending guilt manipulation. The ideas of wokeism and its variants of like cancel culture and whatnot are a desperate search for personal righteousness. They want to give you ways in which you can do penance and you can clear your guilty conscience if you do the right virtue signal and if you yell loud enough, if you post the right thing on social media, if you buy the right product and you boycott the right product, then you will be righteous. But here's the problem. Wokeism says that every transaction is a hierarchy. There's always an imbalance of power and therefore everything is always wrong. So there's also this unending guilt that is piled upon our people again and again. And so in the name of so-called liberation, our people are being shackled to a new kind of fundamentalism. We are told oppression is inescapable, that it will never go away. It will always be there. And all this does is pile guilt upon people and it breaks them down both mentally and emotionally. And every sociological study shows that that is true. We are so broken mentally and emotionally because we really are guilty. But Satan is really good at making you feel like the guilt's actually over here when it's here. And piling on and multiplying guilt is just an attempt to control people for personal and political gain. 
because people who feel guilty are easier to manipulate. And their consciences are really dripping and weighed down with real guilt. But the priests of our day will not lift a finger to do anything but pile more guilt upon them. And so you are told what food you should buy, what clothes you should wear, the restaurants you can and can't eat at, the beverages you can and can't drink, the characters that should be rewritten and put into different movies, etc., etc., etc. Why? They're trying to right the wrongs of the past, they say. They're searching for righteousness. It's really odd that a claiming relativistic people who say there is no right and wrong have become fundamentalists. But here we are. You're in God's world. You can't get away from making absolute statements. And every choice now, from kids programming to buying an apple at the store, is considered by some a political and a moral statement. When I go shopping, I'm not making a moral statement. And so we are sold a list of virtues to prove how we can be righteous. But this type of works-based salvation never satisfies because it only adds more to our guilt. It enslaves us. And here's the application. Enter the gospel of Jesus Christ. God's free gift of grace to you. It aims at the real guilt that is gnawing away at your heart and your soul. And then it eradicates it completely. Christ takes it upon himself and then he gives it to you freely. You can't virtue signal enough to get Christ on your side. You can't accomplish that forgiveness or that freedom that comes from forgiveness. But Christ can, and he has. So we need to tell the secular Pharisees of our day that their gig is up. For those who are forgiven in Christ are thus truly free, not by the works of men or women, but wholly by the merits of Christ. And in that, you have true freedom. Don't let anyone bind your conscience. It is his merits, it is his blood, it is his righteousness that makes us clean. And that, brothers and sisters, actually and fully removes your guilt, your sin, and your shame. It's gone. It's not like still kind of there. It's, it's gone. And you are now free from being manipulated because of your past failures and sins or the past failures and sins of those who came before you. Forgiven men and women are free men and women. Like if there's an underlying theme of this passage, it's that. Forgiven men and women are free men and women. And they are called to live as free slaves who belong to the Word who took on flesh. The Word who is above all earthly powers. His name is Jesus Christ. So live free because of the free grace He has given us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that in your word we see Christ. In your word we see his work to liberate us from our sin. We thank him for that this morning. That we are truly and completely forgiven by the blood of Christ. Lord, may that message empower us to go forward and to live as free men and women who ultimately are slaves to Christ. It is in his name we pray. Amen.